0: The word of the Lord from John chapter 14, verses 23 to 31. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's Pentecost in Jerusalem, and a large crowd has gathered in one place and around one commotion. There are plenty of people for large crowds because Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage festivals in the Old Testament. Jewish men were required by law to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship and make sacrifices at Passover, at Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths. Pentecost is seven weeks or a week of weeks after Passover, and thus in the Old Testament it's called the Feast of Weeks. It makes sense then that Acts 2 notes that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Who else would make three trips to Jerusalem each year? I mean, if you're down the street in Bethlehem, it's not a problem. But if you're a resident of Rome or Libya or Mesopotamia, you lose months out of the year to follow the law. So, it's the devout men, the true believers who are in Jerusalem. They were there 50 days before for Passover, and either they just stayed or they're back for Pentecost. If they were there 50 days before for Passover, what a Passover it was! It would be like driving to a big Thanksgiving dinner and getting into a wreck just outside the house. On the Sunday before, the crowds greeted one Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the Son of David who came in the name of the Lord. Perhaps many of the men in the Pentecost crowd waved palm branches and shouted their hosannas as Jesus rode by on a donkey. In the days that followed, they saw him teaching, working miracles, opposing the Pharisees. On that Friday morning, Perhaps some of the same were in the crowd outside of Pilate's palace shouting, crucify him. And before the sun set and the Passover Sabbath began, they saw his body taken from a cross and laid in a tomb. Mind you, they hadn't come to Jerusalem for all of that. They'd come to Jerusalem for Passover. But by the time Jesus was laid in a tomb, they probably forgot what they were having for dinner. They've had 50 days to think about that, to ponder why they would hail Jesus on a Sunday and call for his killing five days later. They've had 50 days to think about why the chief priests and scribes wanted Jesus dead for claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God when Jesus kept on saying and doing things to prove that he was, in fact, the Messiah and the Son of God. They've had plenty of time to wrestle with the ugly irony that Pilate declared Jesus innocent multiple times and then had him scourged and crucified. And they've had 50 days to contend with the rumors that Jesus has risen from the dead. Remember, these are devout men, the kind that are so serious about keeping God's word that they make the trip to Jerusalem three times a year. These are the men who have been waiting for the Messiah to come, and now they must conclude that maybe he came and they killed him. They might have devoutly believed at the time that it was the right thing to do, but when the Son of God arrived, they put him on a cross. Do you suppose that in the crowds of the devout on Pentecost, there are a few troubled hearts? And now, what a Pentecost this is turning out to be. Though not on the schedule, the multitude is gathered to the sound of a loud rushing wind. And there they find followers of Jesus speaking, not just speaking, but speaking to them in their own native languages, wherever they are from. They're not just speaking, but they're telling the mighty works that God has done. These followers of Jesus, who ought to be scared and scattered after their leader's execution, they're here and boldly proclaiming the acts of God in whom the crowd believes, and they're shamelessly tying God and Jesus together as if they were one. You can understand why devout, conflicted minds with troubled hearts would ask, What does this mean? And to answer the question of these devout men, Peter starts by giving them a prophecy that they're well familiar with from the book of Joel. It reads, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a lot in that prophecy. First off, please note that Peter declares that whatever is happening, it's happening in the last days you'll find plenty of Christians who will tell you that the last days is a specific time of great suffering that is about to start or else has just started whenever someone you don't like gets elected president. Yet way back in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells this crowd that they are living in the last days, which means that God's plan of salvation has been fulfilled. Second, Peter declares that, true to Joel's prophecy and, as promised by Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. God has poured out his Spirit, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, sons and daughters, men and women prophesy. It's not that they start to predict the future, that terrible things will happen the next time a president gets elected that you don't like, But prophesying means that they are declaring what God has done and is doing in Jerusalem that very day. Why is it happening that day? That leads us to the third point. It's happening because something else has just happened. God has shown wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. With the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood. This is all about Good Friday. Was there blood on Calvary? Yes, the innocent blood of the Son of God. Was there fire on Calvary? Remember, in the Old Testament where Joel's prophecies are found, fire was a sign of God's presence. So, is God present on Calvary? Yes, He's the one shedding his innocent blood. Is there smoke on Calvary? When a sacrifice is made for sin in the Old Testament, there's smoke. Is a sacrifice for sin made on Calvary? Oh yes, the sacrifice is made to redeem the world. And as far as the sun and the moon, well... Is there not darkness over all the land while the Savior suffers his father's wrath for your sins? And this is what Peter will tease out in the rest of Acts chapter 2. He will tell this devout crowd of men that, as promised by the Lord Most High, the Son of God came as the Messiah, and they killed him. However, death couldn't hold him, and now he's risen from the dead. At that point, however, it's still not that comforting. I mean, if you've killed someone and they're back from the dead, they may not think too well of you. That's why we should note a fourth thing about Joel's prophecy. God pours out his spirit on all flesh, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where Peter's sermon ends later in Acts 2, There the crowd is horrified that they have killed the Son of God and terrified that they have no hope against a risen, vengeful Messiah. But then Peter tells them that they are not eternal outsiders under the wrath of God, but that Christ died for their salvation. So as Acts 2 concludes, the people repent, they're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, And they too receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Each time the word of God is spoken, God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh in hearing range. In our gospel reading, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, which is an acceptable translation of the Greek, but the word there is actually paraclete. You'll be singing that word in the first distribution hymn today. Built into the word paraclete is the sense that the Spirit calls out. In other words, the Spirit works by the Word of God. And so because holy baptism is water and the Word, the Holy Spirit is at work in holy baptism. And because one cannot have the sacrament of the altar without the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is at work in the supper as well. In Joel's prophecy, remember, Easter and Pentecost are bound together. And in the means of grace today, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are likewise together at work for your salvation and, of course, with the Father's blessing and sending. In our gospel reading, Jesus says quite a few things about the Holy Spirit. When he calls him the paraclete, He is saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who will say what needs to be said. If your conscience is troubled over some sin, well, that's the Holy Spirit at work with the law of God prodding you that you should be troubled over that sin. When you repent, well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit at work by the words that you're honest before God. And then the Holy Spirit works by the gospel to cleanse you of sin and make you holy before God. When Jesus says he leaves peace with his people, he does so by the work of the Holy Spirit. This peace is not like the peace that the world gives because you're only at peace in the world as long as sinners stop misbehaving so that you can breathe easy for a minute. God's peace, on the other hand, is this. Despite all the ongoing evil worked by sinners in the world, and despite the accusations of the devil, you still know that God loves you and doesn't hold your sins against you because Christ died for you. How do you know that you are forgiven? Because the Holy Spirit keeps convicting you that this is true. So when Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Make sure that you hear that for the joy that it is. He is not saying, if you obey me well enough, I will love you. See, the word keep means to hold on to. So this too is the Holy Spirit at work. By the word of God, he creates faith in you that Jesus died for you. Because Jesus loves you so, you love him. And because he is your savior, you keep his word. In other words, you hold on to his word. And as long as you're holding on to and hearing his word, the Holy Spirit is at work to strengthen your faith. Now, some might see Pentecost as a holiday for super believers who speak boldly while tongues of fire dance on their heads to the background of a loud rushing wind. But strip away all the special effects that God provides in Acts 2. And what do you have left? His word. You have his word and thus the Holy Spirit at work in the word to deliver Christ. Deliver Christ to whom? To sinners in need of forgiveness. To troubled hearts for whom Christ died. With those special effects that day in Acts 2. Perhaps the Lord gives you a glimpse of how glorious it will be to be in his presence in heaven. As long as you are here, however, the Lord preserves his word and he pours out his spirit upon you. He gives you his peace, the assurance that he has died for all of your sins. The assurance that the ruler of this world is defeated, that your guilt is taken away. Let not your heart be troubled. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all declare that salvation is yours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.